Do you struggle with emotional regulation? We're going to talk about that today. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Men on Point, a Victories podcast. My name is DJ Paris. I am your guide and host through the show. And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mark Driscoll from Northwestern Family Institute about DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, and how he's seen it help men in their journey towards self-development. Specifically, if you struggle with emotional regulation, distress tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, or mindfulness, DBT might be a good option to consider in your work. Okay, before we get to Dr. Driscoll, we would love to ask just one favor of you. Please tell a friend about Men on Point. We produce regular episodes featuring Victories leaders and also people outside of Victories, such as our interview today. And last, to learn more about the programs that Victories offers men, please visit our website, which is victoriesformen.org, and take a look at our calendar. We have various in-person weekend events and also weekly support groups that anyone can join. Again, please visit victoriesformen.org for more information. By the way, we have a link to victoriesformen.org in the show notes. Also, while this is a podcast produced by Victories, the views and opinions I express are mine and not necessarily reflective of Victories, but I will do my best to create a diverse and inclusive environment full of empathy and also fun. So let's get to it. It's time to learn about DBT. Today, our guest is Dr. Mark Driscoll from the Family Institute at Northwestern here in Chicago. Let me tell you more about Dr. Driscoll. Now, Dr. Mark Driscoll, PhD, is a licensed clinical psychologist, and he received his doctorate in clinical psychology from Marquette University. He is a staff therapist and clinical coordinator for adult dialectical behavior therapy at the Family Institute at Northwestern, where he is also a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology. His clinical practice focuses on helping adults build lives that are meaningful, vital, and worth living. He has extensive training and experience in numerous evidence-based treatments with areas of specialization in dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, radical open dialectical behavior therapy, RODBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, which is known as ACT. To learn more about DBT and other programs offered by the Family Institute at Northwestern, please visit family-institute.org. That link will be in the show notes, so you can visit there to learn about all things uh, at the Northwestern Family Institute. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, DJ. Uh, what works, I'm so excited to have you because DBT has become a lot more visible, I believe, in sort of the mental health community. Uh, I've been seeing lots of, uh, of, of articles written about it, podcasts dedicated to it, people with really having pretty amazing transformations after learning the DBT skills. I know a lot of our audience is hearing about DBT for the first time on the show. So maybe we should start at the very beginning and, and define what DBT is. Sure. Um, so I think the, the, the simple uh, one sentence summary of it 
is something I'll, I'll tell you what I was told when I first learned about it when I was in grad school, which is that it's cognitive behavioral therapy with kind of a like a Zen twist. Um, so what does that mean? So it is a therapy that focuses on how we think, how we act, um, and what we do. And it incorporates uh, mindfulness and sort of Zen practice within it. There's kind of like three, if you imagine a triangle, uh, there's kind of like three corners to it, you know, one of which is, is a behavioral corner. So it's a therapy that like focuses on thoughts, behaviors, and emotions, and tries and help, tries to help clients sort of understand it and change problematic thoughts or problematic actions that are related to emotions. It incorporates mindfulness and Zen practice. That's kind of the other uh, kind of base of the triangle. So it's this balance of like change and acceptance, you know, of, of things as it is right now. And then the, the third corner of the triangle is this principle of dialectics, the synthesis between acceptance and change, you know, that, you know, reality is kind of composed of, of opposites, you know, and where, and, and, and often where we can get stuck is sort of in these polarizations between yeah. these opposites. And so dialectics is sort of an approach that things are always in changing, things are always changing, things are always in flux. And it's the process of synthesizing these two polarities that that like transformation comes out of. Um, well, so while you were while you were speaking about that, I was thinking about this idea of dialectics. And please um correct me if, if I have this wrong, but I was thinking kind of like the the I know that that it, it's not uncommon to struggle with this idea of you know, having two opposing or, or seemingly op opposite feelings about one particular thing simultaneously, right? Like I hate this behavior that my partner just did, but I also love her dearly. Um, so is, is that sort of part of this dialectics is, is understanding that both of those things can be true in a given moment? Yeah. Yeah. That is, I think that's a really good way of sort of thinking about it. Um, DBT was, it was, it was, developed in the 80s and then the initial trials were in the late 80s into the 90s and it was initially designed for um for working with a, a, a particular diagnosis of borderline personality disorder uh marshall Linehan, i should say at, out of the university of washington developed it and one of and it was initially developed for working with people with severe life-threatening behaviors oftentimes you know suicidality repeated suicide attempts uh self-harm uh, substance abuse, um, lots of difficulties with impulsivity. And so the, so how does this relate to dialectics? Many of the behaviors, this was a, it was a diagnosis, it was a diagnos diagnosis that was at the time thought to be untreatable, oftentimes very, you know, judgmental attitudes were held towards it by the mental health practice. And the dialectics was sort of introduced as part of this therapy uh, to, for instance, that many of the, the, many of the clients that were receiving treatment really desperately did want to die, you know, felt very, very miserable. Kind of like imagine the worst day of your life. And then imagine every day of your life being like that. And with and no, with no uh, obvious way out. Correct. Exactly. 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 And at the same time, really were looking for ways to save their lives at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. And so those are two things that, that like seem to, at least on the surface, contradict each other, wanting to die and wanting to live. 
those two things are true at the exact same time. And dialectics is an example of synthesizing that, you know, like I might be, and, and so that's kind of one of the, the, that's sort of one of the foundations of DBT. If we kind of think about it in more of like a everyday kind of example, you know, if I'm stuck in traffic, like in a traffic jam, you know, and my car isn't going anywhere, you know, I may want to get out of that and I may hate that. And at the exact same time, I'm stuck in traffic. There's absolutely nothing that I can do to change it. Right. So those are two things that are true at the exact same time, you know? And so we have to accept something in order to be able to change it, if that makes any sense. It, it makes perfect sense. I'll give you an example. My own therapist had given to me years ago, and I'll be curious to get your thoughts if this sort of connects with, with uh, DBT in, in even a, a small way, mm -hmm. which was uh, for me, um, when I get very angry or, or upset with my, my, my partner, you know, we're having some sort of, you know, squabble, squabble or, or some, some sort of issue. And, and, and I realize, oh, when I'm, when I'm really angry, I'm, I'm not really at my best, um, is to listen and be compassionate and try to connect and have empathy. Mm -hmm. And so it made sense. My therapist told me years ago, you know, maybe it's better just to leave for a while, calm down, come back, and, you know, you'll have a better chance of, of resolving the conflict, which, of course, makes a lot of logical sense. Um, but then there's those instances where you're in a car together and maybe you're stuck in traffic. And in yes, you know, in theory, you just abandon your car, go calm down and come back. But maybe that isn't always possible. So it, that, that sort of thing worked. Uh, up until the time where I'm stuck in a car with somebody yeah. who I'm angry with, and I still have to now calm myself down. Um, so, you know, having sort of different skills so that if I'm in that situation, I can still figure out a way to calm down um, seems to be like incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, what would I, what would I add to that? I think one of the things that, and, you know, maybe we'll talk more about this later on in the podcast, there's kind of like with DBT, there's sort of like five areas that uh the as a treatment it sort of focuses on and it's i've been doing this for i've been i've been in i've been practicing dbt for for 15 years and so when you've been or 15 years 18 years somewhere between a decade and a decade and a half um and and so when when you've been doing something for so long you know so much and when people ask you questions about it it's like oh i I kind of want to tell you everything all at once right now. And so I'm going to try and go through things in a way that like makes sort of logical sense and just give you just enough information. So like there's, there's kind of four components to it that really DBT sort of focuses on that could be used at any point in time. If like you're in the car and you're having, you know, like extreme anger, anger towards your partner, you know, you could, you know, use interpersonal skills, right? To talk about whatever it is you're having, sure. about. you know, you could use mindfulness skills, for instance, to observe the response that you're having in that moment without actually trying to change it. And sometimes that process of just observing gives a little bit of space for the emotion to kind of change sort of on its own. You could use actual, you could use skills to regulate that emotion, right? You could, or you could use skills to tolerate the distress of that emotion in the situation that you're in. As right. to not let it take over the interaction. Exactly. Yeah. And and my understanding of DBT, and please correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, but 
the majority of skills, if not all the skills, these are not theoretical. These are evidence. Well, they are theoretical with evidence-based data to sort of back them up. This is, this is not a, a newer therapy based on sort of hopes and wishes. It's actually based on clinical trials. Uh, Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. It is. So DBT is um, one of the most widely researched therapies. It has, oh, it has, I believe some, I believe it has in the area of the twenties of randomized clinical trials for it internationally speaking. Right. Um, And so it is one of the most widely evidence-based therapies that you can find out there. Uh, Behavioraltech.org, I believe, uh, has a list of all the references for the different therapies that are out there, or not the therapies that are out there, for all the different clinical trials that have been conducted with DBT. So it's been used, it's been researched with adults, it's been researched with adolescents, it's been researched with families, with multiple different um, diagnostic categories. You know, I started with, uh, I started by mentioning borderline personality disorder earlier. It has in the, in the, in the decades since it, the initial publications, um, it has been uh, developed more as a, a, there's more evidence for it as a trans diagnostic therapy. So across multiple diagnostic categories with the, the commonality for it being helpful with emotion regulation difficulties, right? So big emotions that come out of the blue and kind of take over and sort of start directing, you know, what we think or how we act. So and and so my understanding of borderline personality disorder is it's that it's ex- incredibly problematic to treat or maybe was certainly more problematic prior to DBT and DBT if i understood you correctly was was used as as a real life or, or hope a, a lifeline for some of these these clinicians and also their patients mm-hmm. uh, most specifically the patients to actually have as you said like a way out of that that locked room um, where where it was just reliving misery or or challenge uh, over and over and over again. So um, that and borderline personality, of course, has has been more in the news recently as well. And yeah. from the people I know who who work in the mental health field, it, you just mentioned the word borderline personality, and and sometimes they start to go, oh, oh, it's the most difficult thing to treat. But the vast majority of 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 us listening probably don't suffer from borderline personality. Um, but but I know DBT works even outside of people who suffer from that diagnosis. Um, can you talk a little bit, how did DBT funnel down to people who aren't suffering from, from borderline personality? Well, I think the, 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 the commonality, like I said before, is that it's a, it's a therapy that is, is meant to help with um, emotion regulation difficulties, complex, difficult to treat problems. And so um, there's really robust evidence for DBT with things like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, OCD, um, many different personality disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, substance abuse disorders, it sort of goes on and on. So like the the way it sort of funnels down is the uh, the way DBT was sort of like if you read through the book, <laughs> you kind of, one of the things that's kind of interesting is, you know, Marcia sort of takes what was initially the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder, 
this is going to come back to uh, this is going to come back to the funnel down question that you answered. So just hold on for a moment. Um, she took sort of the diagnostic criteria for it and sort of reformulated it in terms of dysregulation, right? So dysregulation in interpersonal relationships. So like relationships, you know, that can be uh, stormy or chaotic, difficulty maintaining relationships, difficulty, you know, asserting wishes, difficulty with saying no in interpersonal relationships, you know, um, different uh, difficulty in making requests in ways that, you know, don't burn out relationships, for instance, right? Uh, difficulty with emotion regulation. So big emotions that come out of nowhere and, or seem to come out of nowhere and influence how people think, influence what they do, right? Um, difficulties with tolerating distress, right? So, you know, if I am, you know, in a car uh, with my partner and I experience a really strong emotion of sadness or fear or guilt or shame, that actually might influence how I interact with my partner, right? In ways that might be, might cause a problem. I might snap at them. I might stare through them. I might, you know, verbally attack them repeatedly, you know, and, you know, they might respond to me in a way that attacks back, for instance, or criticizes me. And then my emotion sort of gets bigger, right? So you can sort of see how difficulties with tolerating a distress of an emotion or an emotion that comes out of nowhere might influence interpersonal relationships, right? I might not even be aware that I'm doing it. You know, like sometimes that happens and an emotion gets so big and like, it's almost like a fog sort of comes over, you know, and you kind of go on autopilot, right? So there's dysregulation in terms of cognition, right? You know, so difficulty knowing what's going through your head, really fast judgments, because the mind is going all the time. And a lot of times it's sort of under the surface, but it sort of influences how I might be thinking about my partner in that moment, right? Absolutely. It, it, I guess the, the, if I'm understanding this idea of being able to better regulate one's emotions sort of gives the person the, the best chance of making a decision that's in their best interest mm -hmm. and maybe in, in, you know, whoever else maybe, maybe in the room or, or in that moment with them, uh, sort of just gives people the best opportunity to move forward, I guess. Yeah. And so if you, if you, if you kind of think of those areas of, of, of dysregulation, and then the last area of dysregulation was, uh, you know, uh, difficulties with, you know, life-threatening and suicidal behavior. So it was reformulated in terms of those five areas of dysregulation. That cuts across lots of different diagnostic categories. You know, you can see different forms of dysregulation in many of the different conditions that I mentioned before, like OCD, for instance, or in depression or in anxiety or in post-traumatic stress disorder and, and, and it can sort of go on and on and on. And so that's what I mean when I say that like it's that funnel down is because those areas of dysregulation are sort of the, the bottom line of, of kind of when we're, when I'm working with a client and I'm trying to sort of consider would DBT sort of fit them like a glove. Those are sort of the things that I'm thinking about. And those are the things that I'm looking for. And one of the cool things about it is that um, DBT, uh, you know, is kind of often talked about in uh, like the, the, I don't know, public lexicon in terms of like the skills, the behavioral skills. And when I was learning DBT uh, from my, from my mentors, one of the things that, that she said uh, that blew my mind was, you know, DBT isn't the skills, the skills are the skills. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was like, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> and and so where I'm going with this is that all of those skills that, I'm, that, that DBT is known for are standard cognitive behavioral therapy skills that are reformulated in terms of helping with, you know, emotional dysregulation. So if that makes some sense. <laughs> it, it, it does. And I guess it makes sense to why it's become more popular for people who don't necessarily suffer with borderline personality disorder or, or even some of the more extreme uh, challenging diagnoses or, or cha- uh, conditions that, you know, probably a lot of our audience don't struggle with. I'm, I'm seeing lots of DBT skill groups um, online. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing there's lots of Facebook groups and, and different organizations offering these these skills because they seem to be effective uh, for for a lot a huge group of people. Maybe even those not suffering with those particular you know sort of um, challenges. Yeah, yeah. How, how did you get involved with DBT? How was it introduced to you? Is it something you sought out and found? Was it part of your, your graduate work? Um, how, how did it enter your life? I was, so I got my, uh, so like you mentioned earlier, I got my, my PhD at Marquette and my third year of training, third or fourth, I can't remember which, um, my clinical externship was at a uh, practice in the Milwaukee suburban area of Brookfield um, called the Center for Behavioral Medicine. And I was really lucky enough uh, to get to get a placement there. And it was a comprehensive dialectical behavior therapy training program, right? Um, and so like comprehensive DBT, because there are lots of people out there who say they do DBT and they actually just sort of do a flavor of it. And, and full DBT is a skills group uh, individual therapy in between session phone coaching and then consultation team, which is for the therapists themselves. They did all of that there. And the woman who trained me, uh, was a, um, clinical psychologist named Joan Russo, who's since retired. And if she ever listens to this program, Hey Joan, uh, who like it, it was just honestly the single best clinical experience that I have ever had. And it's kind of been the thing that I have like it just sort of got its arms around me. I've, I've always had like an interest in working with emotional dysregulation and kind of complex or difficult to treat sort of behaviors. It's just intuitively something that like interests me. And also at a very human level, DJ, like one of the things that I really appreciated about DBT was sort of the concreteness and the tangibility of it you know, that, that like, oh, there are actually things that you can do and things that you can teach people uh, for people who have been basically through hell and over time to sort of see slow changes where they get out of hell is like a really humbling and really powerful experience. So that was kind of my connection with it. You know, that, that was sort of how it got its arms around me. It's, it's a style of therapy that like, for me seemed to fit. Like I, I kind of have big emotions myself, you know? (laughs) So it sort of like spoke my language. Um, The connection with mindfulness was really something that resonated with me deeply. I I did not really practice it prior to getting involved in DBT at all. And it was sort of the idea of taking Zen practice and breaking it down into like the specific actions you know, how you practice mindfulness as opposed to like, just sit there and breathe. Okay. But do what, <laughs> you know, right. and, and this sort of like 
okay, so now I'm breathing, but like my mind is going a mile a minute. So like, now I'm just like irritated, you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, DBT sort of broke it down in terms of like, well, as you're breathing, you know, what you want to do is practice noticing what's going through your mind. You're not trying to clear your head of thoughts. You can't do that. Otherwise, you know, you know, if your mind was empty of thoughts, you'd you'd be dead, you know? (laughs) So like, it was, it was this idea of like breaking it down into like concrete steps. And it just sort of fit me kind of like a glove, you know? So, uh, so you were able to experience personal benefit yourself um, yeah. in, in whatever areas it was, it was helping you. And, and then you were able to then also be trained in how to present that to others. Um, that's, that's a pretty exciting thing. And, and you sort of, it's grabbed hold of you, as you mentioned, and it hasn't really given up its hold, right? You found this to be, uh, is it, is it an important part of your, of your private practice as well? Yeah. I mean, I, so, um, so I, I do full protocol DBT and it's kind of influenced every single therapy that I practice, even if I'm not doing DBT, you know, there are, there are just like some fundamental, um, I guess for lack of a better word, like moves <laughs> that are like are inherent to it that like I I sort of have adopted and and you know kind of apply it's a therapy like I'm kind of like sort of a I'm sort of twitchy and I'm kind of jokey and you know I'm a little irreverent uh or at least I hope I am and you know this is a therapy that like allows me to do that it just sort of fits my personality it's not like it's a therapy that allows me to like joke around, but also be human with another person. It's not this therapist is up here and client is down here kind of thing. It's a much more, or at least as I try and practice it, um, it's a much more egalitarian. It's a real relationship, you know what I mean? Between a, a, a client and, and a therapist, you know? So. Yeah. And, and there's, and there, it seems like there's a little bit of an instruct instruction or instructor, uh, vibe to it, which traditional therapies have been more, um, in, in my understanding. And again, there's a lot of different disciplines of therapy, mm-hmm. but talk, traditional talk therapies will say, um, you know, we're, we're more focused in, in a, in a bit of a different way where in my understanding, which was the, the clinician is sitting there absorbing, taking in, reflecting the patient is doing the majority of, of the speaking and, and, and then there's some sort of help that that's delivered. Um, this is a little bit different, right? It's a little bit more about learning the skill, which needs to be taught from a skilled instructor. Yeah, I think that is, I think that's part of it. Um, so what, so what I'm thinking about, uh, as you're talking about this is that like the way that the skills sort of work is that they are in service of helping solve a problem. You know what I mean? So, okay. One of the things, one of the ways like learning DBT sort of uh, affected me is that I'm a much more compassionate and empathetic human being than I was maybe before. <laughs> but, and, and so like one of the things that like, I remember sort of, you know, kind of trying to get like kind of grumbling about when I was a grad student was like, you know, some, some of my mentors and some of my, my supervisors would sort of talk about therapy as if it were sort of magic you know, and just sort of sitting there and, and, and being in a room with a client would sort of, you know, change things, help them build insight. 
And, and my whole thinking at that time was sort of like, yeah, but how, you know, like, what does that actually do? And I think one of the things that makes DBT a little bit different, I mean, this is not specific just to DBT. You'll also find this in like ACT, you'll find this in, in cognitive behavioral therapy is, is that, you know, the, the skills are in service of solving a problem. So when I'm working with a client, what you're, one of the things that I'm doing is trying to identify if I have like, I don't know, let's say I got in an argument with my partner. One of the things that I'm trying to do is to identify what set it off and then what happens that leads up to, you know, like me, you know, really chewing someone out, for instance, you know, and then maybe like shutting down and refusing to have a conversation with them, you know? And so maybe along the way, following a prompting event, which might be like my partner kind of like looking at me and sort of like rolling their eyes, for instance, you know, like maybe immediately what happens is like an intense response of shame, for instance, you know, well, what do, and then immediately what happens after that is, you know, I have a real lightning quick, um, you know, like image in my head of like, let's say I grew up in a family that was like really critical of me, you know, and I felt humiliated a lot. And then suddenly I have an image of that in my head. You know, it's not necessarily something that I, you know, really am consciously aware of so much as it's like lightning quick. Right. And then I, you know, you know, my hands might sort of clench up in response to it. And then the next thing I know, you know, I'm in the middle of an argument. And so like in that space right there, you know, the way those skills get used is they are in service of addressing those like links in that chain between the prompting event and the behavior. In other words, we're trying to find out what the controlling variables are, the controlling emotions or thoughts or physical sensations that lead to something that someone might want to change. And the skills are trying to find solutions for that, you know? Got it. So, so somebody might know, I grew up in a critical family with a lot of humiliation and shame. And I know that cognitively I've done enough work on myself to understand why that happens. However, in an yeah. instance where um, it, 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 I'm now feeling humiliation and shame because of something that's happened, I, I might know why I'm feeling that, but I still might not be able to control it. Exactly. So exactly. CBT gives us a little glimmer of hope of, oh, here's a, something you can actually do to, to then cope with this um, in the moment. Exactly. Like one of the, this is just like, and this is just how human beings work. Insight is great. It's not always sufficient to change things though, you know? And, and many times there's, without going like too far into the the weeds on this one, there is a, one of the, the, so one of the theories that sort of undergirds DBT, undergirds DBT is. It's a great word. I'm going to add that to my. <laughs> is, is the idea of, of, of there's, a, there's a theory called the biosocial theory. The guts of the idea is the way emotion dysregulation sort of develops over time is that you've got two things. One is the person's bio temperament, meaning that, you know, the kid is born with just the ability to have bigger emotions. And know? that might be a hard wiring. That might be hard. Exactly. Yeah. It's just sort of like how you're put together. What happens over someone's life is that, you know, 
emotion regulation is taught, you know, like the, the, the just common day-to-day -day interactions between like a, a caregiver and a child teaches kids how to like observe an emotion, label an emotion, talk about an emotion, express it, soothe. That just happens over the course of life, right? What the biosocial theory says is like for those kids who are born with that bio temperament, they're also in an environment that actually doesn't teach them that, that actually is critical or punitive or teaches them that, you know, what they're feeling or thinking in that moment is bad, wrong, incorrect. And so the kid doesn't learn how to regulate emotions, doesn't learn how to soothe, right? Doesn't actually really learn how to like talk about it. One of the things that I consistently, one of the things that is, that, that happens a lot with DBT is clients have an <laughs> learning to know what emotion you're feeling is a really hard thing to do. Like for a lot of, for, for many people, it's like, what are you feeling? I don't know. It's just like a, I talk about it. Like, you know, you feel just sort of a big ball of yuck. Learning to read an emotion is sort of like learning to read a book, you know? And so if you can't read an emotion, it's really hard to regulate it, you know? And, and, and learning to read emotions and understand them is, is largely a newer thing um, for parents, uh, I believe to teach to, to children, right. This was something mm -hmm. that certainly wasn't taught to, in most cases to, to parents who are now raising children who, you know, really, I see this, this is a really important skill for, for families to learn. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with that. Like it, it's something that's sort of been, so I have two kids. I have a, I have an eight-year-old daughter and I have a four-year-old son. Um, and so this is something that's kind of in the back of my head a lot of sort of like teaching, like trying to teach them like, okay, so what are you feeling right now? You know, like what's going on? You know, like, can you tell me what it is that you're feeling? Is this something that you need to sort of tolerate or, or is this something you need to regulate? I don't use that words with them, but I mean, that's kind sure. of the conversation I have with them. And, you know, I think I had this moment the other day. So um, about a month ago, my mother-in-law passed away. Right. Oh, and sorry so, to hear that. thank you for saying that. And, and so on the day that we told my, my eldest daughter, my oldest daughter, like, I remember I went upstairs and she was like reading a book and I was like, Hey kiddo, like, I just kind of want to like check in with you right now. Like, how are you, how are you doing? And she looks at me and she was like, well, you know, like I, I feel a little sad right now. What I'm doing is I'm just sort of distracting myself from the emotion that I'm going to come back and sort of feel it a little bit later on. And I was like, whoa, like you're doing like infinitely better than I did at eight years old with this sort of stuff. So yeah, like yeah. it really, why am I saying this? Like the, the point is that like, I, my hope is that like, you know, with kids, it can be a really transformative experience, you know? Um, they've done, some, as a side note, they've done some really interesting research on this where there have been some adaptations of DBT to just to be used in skills with non-clinical populations taught in sort of a way that like social emotional learning gets taught, you know, so they're taught the skills as ways to sort of interact with each other in high school or like junior high. And they've had some pretty interesting results in terms of like a decrease in, in conflict and increases in emotion regulation and, and, and on and on and on. So yeah, it, it, in terms of like, in terms of like what we can do as parents to teach, to teach kids in terms of emotion regulation, there's some, there's, DBT has, has a little bit to say about that. So, yeah. So it seems like this idea that children are allowed to feel difficult feelings that, that mm -hmm. may be, may be more challenging for parents uh, in some cases than even the child. Uh, Cause I remember 
you know that that was certainly when I was when I was growing up in my in my time and and seeing it in my peer group. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't remember there was a lot of emphasis on allowing uh, children to feel difficult feelings because they were problematic for the family, um, or at least that's how that was sort of the lens it was looked through was, hey, your anger is problematic or your sadness is problematic. And now I, I definitely see parents talking a lot about more about uh, teaching children to accept their feelings. And I think DBT seems to go a step further saying, yes, it, you can accept these difficult feelings and here's something that you can do with it so that it doesn't take you down or it doesn't you know, take, pull you off track. Is, is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think it is. Um, the, a way that I have kind of, a way that I often talk about it with people is I didn't come up with this. This is, this is one of Marsha's points is that like at any point in time, there are like about, you know, the number of things that can create painful emotions is like almost infinite, you know? And at any point in time, you've kind of got like four choices really about how you handle any sort of difficult situation you can you know change it you can try and change it you know like if you can get out of it or stop it from happening whatever the situation is that sets off a painful emotion you know that's a legit way to try and solve the problem you know if you can if i was if i was just sitting across from someone i was like yeah you know, I, I don't really like my job you know a reasonable thing just a common sense thing to say is like well, have you can you quit you know <laughs> right so like that, if you can change it, stop it from happening, go ahead and do that. You know, you, the second response is, you know, you might try and change how you feel about the problem, which usually involves, you know, changing how you think or changing how you act. Right. So that's kind of the idea of like, you know, there's something that you could do. Right. So if I couldn't quit my job because I don't know, let's say I'm in, let's say I live somewhere where there's maybe what I do is not, there's maybe not many choices or different places where I could go, you know, or maybe I'm a couple of years away from retirement, you know, and I can't quit my job without like losing my retirement. Um, or maybe like my partner is, you know, really committed to their job and I can't quit and move without, you know, them losing their job. Maybe I can change how I think or, or feel about the job that I'm in, you know, maybe that's possible. So possibilities changing how you think or changing how you feel. Oh, you know, like I don't, I may not like my job, but I really like my coworkers and I'm just going to focus on that, you know, or, you know, I don't like my job, but I really like how I feel at the end of the day when I go home or I can make it for two years until I retire. I can do that. It's a long time and I can still do that. Right. You know, and that is a legitimate way of changing how we feel. You know, third thing is to just accept the situation or the emotion that goes along with it. Right. And then the fourth is, you know, maybe do nothing or stay miserable or do something to make the situation worse. But I mean, like, those are really basically the four choices that you have, you know, and, and with DBT and DBT, I don't think is the only therapy that does that. It's something that is explicitly talked about in DBT. You know, it's like, well, those are your four choices. So what you're going to do, what are you going to do? Right. And if your choice is to do nothing and stay miserable, well, then we're going to have to work on acceptance of that as well. <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, it, se- it seems that, you know, we're t- we've talked about this as uh, a particularly useful skill to teach young children, but I know it's also incredibly popular, like you were saying, in, in the non-clinical world, meaning people who aren't necessarily, you know, suffering from a particular diagnosis, but they're having challenges in their life as adults. Mm-hmm. And this can be taught to men and women um, at, at, at any age. And, um, and there's research that you know, people who are fully grown and fully formed uh, can d- develop and adapt these skills. Um, and and you've, I'm sure you've seen some pretty impressive uh, behavioral changes or or just results from from you know your your patients or or just mm-hmm. from you know the public in general. Can you talk just a little bit about where you've seen uh, people have improvements um, in their life by really incorporating DBT? Um, yeah, I, I I think there are. I'm pausing because I want to make sure that I'm being really thoughtful about this question and not, you know, giving away or not, you know, sharing clinical information about like particular clients that I've worked with. So I'm going to talk a little bit in terms of like generalities, if that's okay, DJ. Sure. Cool. Um, So like I can think of specific clients that uh, I, I have worked with where um, at the beginning of therapy, they were in a real spot of desperation. Um, Some of them with having made repeated attempts on their life uh, were unemployed, were socially isolated, alone. Um, And so the conversation that you have, that I have, and that anyone in DBT has at the very beginning is like, so what are you, what do you hope to get out of therapy? You know, it's not, DBT is not a suicide prevention program. It's, it's like a, it's a life enhancement program, so to speak. And so like one of the first conversations that I, that I, that I have with someone in DBT is like, so what's your life worth living? Like, what do you want so badly for yourself that you're willing to turn yourself inside out for, you know, like what, what do you hope to get out of this? What would be a meaningful life for you? And you kind of get like a concrete idea of what that would look like. And then you set some goals about that. And then you talk about, so you have all these things that, that, you know, these behaviors that you don't like, you know, um, you might harm yourself, you know, or you might have a substance abuse problem, or you might uh, be unemployed and have a tremendous amount of difficulty getting out of bed. Does that get in the way of you having a life worth living? And so you work on changing those behaviors in service of, of, of building a life worth living. So it's not, it's not about necessarily about stopping the behavior unless it interferes with someone's life worth living. Sure. And so like over the course of my career, you know, I've seen people stop self-harming. I've seen people go from uh, like years of unemployment to, to being employed. I've seen people who are socially isolated get married. Uh, I've seen people essentially get out of hell. It's not easy, you know. It sometimes takes years. I've I've worked with clients on recovering from from trauma. Um, there's one that I, I am actually thinking of right now where um, we just finished uh, trauma treatment. Um, that was of a, of a, of a, how do I want to say this? 
the person, um, this particular client was unable to ride bikes and cross streets. And there was a really, really, really powerful moment some, uh, some months ago where, you know, they told me really happily, you know, I'm riding bikes now, you know, um, I'm crossing streets now. And, and those are, those are huge moments where someone slowly gets out of hell. Um, I hope I'm answering. Am I answering your question? You are. So, and so this idea that even if it's as seemingly, um, non-life-threatening, but problematic, like mm-hmm. um, like being able to cross the street on a bike or being able to look at my partner and not feel as much resentment about maybe unresolved conflict or the way she, the way I load the dishes might be a way that she, uh, fi- you know, gets gets angry. Um, I always find that dish loading is is can be very um very personal to to people so i'm i'm just using that as a silly example but but I, this I, idea you know <laughs> <laughs> um yeah this i this idea that e- even in these non life threatening behaviors there there's there's an elegance to some of these skills that allow mm. more more choice right so in my my you know my partner or my children or or you know my coworkers or my boss are, are doing something that i that that i have a oh this reaction to and i can live in the yuck as you said the big ball of yuck and and learn how to sort of accept it or make a change um or i i can also learn these set of skills that will allow me to to get to a place where i can make a different choice mm-hmm. is is that is that a fair statement this yeah. I, because i find that the insight of, of why do I get upset when my, you know, my partner or my boss does X, Y, or Z. Oh, well, you know, I've done enough work to know that it comes from this for thing from my childhood and, and yes, uh, but I'm still, still can't seem to do much with it other than get really, really upset. And that's not great for a healthy workplace or, or, you know, a, a, a interpersonal, you know, romantic partnership. Um, so this DBT would allow me maybe some more wiggle room to, to get to a place where I'm not creating more problems, uh, based on some of this old programming that I might still be running. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. 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 Uh, like a really concrete example for the, from like my own life. And this is just like a, 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 like an everyday example. I use this when I teach, um, in, in a skills group, um, about a particular skill that's called the stop skill. I talk about this example a lot, like, uh, some months ago, like there was one morning where I was running late to get out the door and I take, you know, my youngest kid to, to daycare. He's in preschool now, but uh, I was taking him to daycare and I was like, okay, Elliot, it's time to, you know, get out of your PJs and get dressed. And he did the most amazing thing that four-year-olds sometimes do where he like ran away from me. And and then he hid behind the door and he peeked out and he sort of started like, looked at me. He made eye contact with me today and like, <laughs> he laughed at me as if, so, like, gotcha, you know? And, and like, I just went, I went zero to 100 so fast, Yeah, you know, and got really, got really harsh, you know? And so I looked back, like after I'd gotten him to school, I was like, okay, so what went on there? Like, what was happening for me? And I noticed, like, I was like, so I got really, really, like, angry. And what was it actually that got me angry? And I realized it was the eye contact and the smile, right? So I've got, like, 
I've got like this prompting event, this 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 interaction between me and reality that like sets it off. You know what I mean? And so I'm like, okay, so like without judgment, let's accept the fact that I got really really angry, right? And then and, and by the way, you you don't like you didn't like the fact that you got angry. Is is that my understanding? You wish you're absolutely okay. Right. Just yeah. wanted to clarify. Okay. That's actually a really, really good point. Uh, you know, because like, and, and I think this is something that that it's important to highlight that acceptance is not the exact same thing as saying, I like this or I approve of it, or I think that it's good. I actually wanted to change the fact that I was getting so angry, or at least how I was like responding to Elliot, you know, Elliot's um Elliot's my son's name, you know. But I have to accept that this is something that's going on with me first, instead of going like, this is bad. How could I do that? It's so stupid. What's wrong with me? I'm I should know loser. better. I should be perfect. I exactly. should. Yes. Yes. You know, because like flagellating myself, so to speak, like how those monks used to do back in the day, that's not going to get me anywhere. You know, it's not going to change what happened. So I had to sort of like figure out, okay, so it's the eye contact and the smile and the laugh. Like that's really what set me in the red he's a four-year-old he's probably gonna do this again right. maybe a lot so like what am i gonna do you know and so you know i kind of go moment by moment very very slowly like i noticed my heart you know sped up a lot okay so do i have any sort of skills if i just look at that right there you know do i want to accept that my heart is speeding up do i want to see if i can figure out how to change that later on down the road maybe I can try some breathing that might slow my heart down a little bit. You know, I, I like, I remember, you know, that like my face, like really, I have this physical memory of like scowling, you know, when he, when he looked at me and laughed, and I was like, okay, so that my face is like, I'm scowling. My brow is furrowed. So I'm sending a message like neurologically to my body when I'm doing that, like that's going to feed my emotion, you know, cause there's a whole, like, the muscles in the face neurologically are linked really strongly with the brain. So if I'm acting like this is a really bad situation, I'm emotionally going to respond like that. So not only do I have to like slow my breathing down, maybe what I might need to do is sort of change my face, not try and mask it or suppress it, but like actually see if I can relax it because masking, you know, what you're feeling also sends a message to your body. It, it, it sends the signal like, hey, what you're feeling is bad. You really can't show it. And so you've got like these conflicting things going on where like, I, I'm feeling this way, but I'm not showing it. So this situation must really be bad, you know? <laughs> so like changing and actually relaxing your face sends a totally different signal to your body. So I've got those two things, you know? I've got my voice tone, right? Which actually might be influencing Elliot. You know, and it took me a little while to figure this out, like for him, that I, my wife and I have joked about this. Some kids, I'm, I kind of work this way too. Uh, some kids just like knowing they get a rise out of you. Like sure. that gives them sort of a sense of pleasure. Like I sort of enjoy kind of knowing I got someone to feel a big emotion. So like me kind of getting harsh might actually, even though I don't want to, might actually be reinforcing the very behavior in Elliot, teaching him to do it because he's like, oh, now I know that I can get you, right? So maybe I have to like change how I'm responding to him, you know, in terms of my tone of voice. So like out of like this really small moment with something that I don't like, you've suddenly got like a hundred cards you can play, so to speak, as opposed to like, well, I guess I'm just doomed to getting angry at him every single time he runs away, you know, or trying to change his behavior while I'm still like doing something that might be 
putting gasoline on the fire of a situation, so to speak, if that makes sense. It does. It it seems like it gives parents uh, an opportunity to not fall into the when child A does this, I automatically respond with, you know, with with child does X, I respond with big emotion Y, and I'm going to shame the child for my reaction to their behavior, um, it, which maybe that is the appropriate response, but it's it's not necessarily the only option. And it seems like DBT gives the parent a, a different way to look at their response as opposed to child made me feel X. Well, child did X, I felt Y, and let's break down the, the sequence and maybe I can interrupt that sequence or I can give myself a different option so that we're, we're not just doing the, hey, you know, Child and dance be, be better so yeah. that daddy can feel okay kind of situation. And one of the things that I think about is that little moment right there, maybe with some, maybe with like the particulars of it changing, but I can, I can see examples of where I've done something similar with that with like my partner or with a friend sure. or something like that. Maybe not someone looking at me and laughing, but like there's that, that little snippet right there, it, you know, it can apply, it applies to my relationships in some way, shape or form. So there's still kind of this component of like, what sets off the emotion? What's happening for you on the inside? And then how does that affect what's going on in reality in a way that, you know, you like or you don't? I have two other areas I want to explore with you. One being um, this idea of loneliness. And I'm curious if DB, if you've seen DBT be effective, you mentioned um, working with, with patients and, and clients who have had, uh, you know, maybe social anxiety or, or maybe just feelings of, of loneliness. I'm inserting that you, you did not say that, but one of the, it's funny, we are not, not funny, but interesting to us on, I'm on the marketing committee for victories of the heart. And we, one of the things we were doing a few years ago was trying to understand, you know, the profile of, of men who come through our programs, which have, they've been doing since 1985. And we had certain set of assumptions because there's certain goals that are, um, that, that are, are established when men go through the programs and they're more about, you know, I want this and, and here's what's stopping me. Um, but we also learned that a lot. So we, we had thought on the marketing committee, well, this is why people come to our programs to break through some perceived boundary that they can't, you know, find themselves getting, getting past. And yes, that, that is, but actually a bigger component of the reason why men, at least according to the survey we did of past people who thousands of men who have been through the program was about loneliness. And even though the, the introductory weekend program that victory says called the breakthrough weekend, and it's about breaking through. Um, but one of the benefits uh, is you're going through this particularly heavy experience with lots of other men who, who may have different challenges, but we're they're all kind of committed to helping themselves and, and the other men there. And so this idea of community ends up coming out of it. And so men, whether they were aware of loneliness or not before they went in, find like, wow, I now have this group of, of like-minded men. We've had these this sort of you know deep, powerful experience, and we can now continue to connect with each other. Um, and, and what we found is this loneliness thing is men said, boy, they were so lonely mm-hmm. prior to coming in, which was not necessarily the primary aim of, of what Victories of the Heart does, although it seems to have this, this benefit of community. So we know that there's a lot of lonely men out there. And I'm sure COVID, of course, probably made that worse for 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 the world, um, at least you know for, for that time. Have you seen DBT be effective to help someone who's coping with with this idea of I'm all alone or I don't know how to relate to others or you know anything like that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's the idea of finding relationships, maintaining relationships, um, improving relationships that are like maybe strained or um, estranged, I guess would be another way of sort of saying it. So yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's one of the, 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 one of the main things that we work on in DBT. I mean, like I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, emotions, you know, with you here, but there is the idea of like building and improving relationships. So we go back to the, um, if we both, if we go back to those areas of dysregulation that I talked about earlier, like interpersonal dysregulation is one of those and loneliness can often be a consequence of that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have relationships that are strained or very, very few, you're often going to feel lonely as a consequence of that, you know? Yes. And so one of the things that I work on, many of my clients will come in and part of their life worth living is I, I want to have a, a, a I want to have a, a group of people, you know, or a per- I want to be in a marriage or I want to be dating someone or I want to have friends and I have very few friends. And so, you know, we work on establishing goals in service of that, you know, like, okay, so let's talk about a life worth living. What would that look like for you in terms of your social relationships? In your heart of hearts, what do you want your relationships to look like? Right. Mm -hmm. And so like part of, part of one of the things that I think, you know, like I'm imagining one of the things that can be so helpful about like sort of the, 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 the weekend that you talked about, the retreat that you talked about is with that group of men, you know, there's, there's this idea of connection yes. that gets established and sort of validation and being seen and understood. Yes. It's like an antidote for loneliness. It is. Right? It's this idea of, of being able to express vulnerability uh, in, in a way that is safe um, or, or, mm-hmm. or the intention is, is for it to be safe which doesn't, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities for men to do that. Um, at least, you know, not that I'm aware of. Um, th- there are other men's organizations, of course, that do provide that. Mm-hmm. But outside of those specific organizations, including places like Victories to the Heart, it's it, it was not woven into the fabric of my interpersonal relationships with my friends growing up. It was, I, I remember my therapist had said something very, very interesting to me years, years ago. And we were talking about friendships and I said, you know, she had asked when I first started, who do I talk to about my problems? And that was, that's another thing we've learned, um, in, in victories over all the, the, the years is that men oftentimes don't have, uh, or they aren't uh, actively talking about their struggles with other, with other men or, or, or even necessarily with their partners, or if it's maybe about their partners or their children, or, you know, their their boss or, or whoever, they don't have someone else to say, I, I, I want to talk about this, um, and, and a place to sort of do that. Um, and, and it, what's interesting about DBT I find is, is that it allows people to better understand what they need in, mm-hmm. in those instances of, of struggle. And I wanted to ask specifically about shame or criticism, um, or self-criticism uh, in particular. So we've talked a lot about how it can impact relationships. Um, I'm curious uh, with others, I'm yeah. curious about how it can impact the relationship. Some, 
some uh, men may have, and and I don't, of course, could, gender is irrelevant, but but since we're this is a podcast for men, I'm just using that that pronoun um, or, or that sorry, not pronoun, but but that that noun um, that that type of gender is you know this idea of of being we we found this too to be that that mm-hmm. uh, in 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 our sort of the history of victories this idea of self criticism perfectionism um is is very common and I'm curious to see uh curious to hear how you find that that dbt can help with with this idea of being overly self critical yeah so one of the one of the foundational skills that that we work on is this idea of like you could self-criticism or like self-invalidation, you know, the, yeah. what, like the way that we talk to ourselves in ways that is like harsh or critical, sort of like what you've talked about just a second ago, DJ, one of the skills that, that we teach is to, is non-judgmentalness, right? To be able to observe what we do without kind of the, the layer of bad, wrong, and so on and so forth, which is a simple idea that can be really hard to do, especially when it's applied to yourself, right? And so it's it's a skill. It's not a magic spell. You know, it's like I say a lot, you know, and, and I remember when I was first getting trained, um, and I'll come back to shame in just a second, uh, Joan, who I mentioned earlier, you know, she was like, Mark, just practice non-judgmentalness on a coffee cup. Don't, don't apply it to yourself first. Just describe a, a coffee cup non-judgmentally, you know? So you kind of got to like build up, you know, in the same way that like, if you were learning to like play an instrument, you got to start by just, you know, being able to play like a note as opposed to like moving to like, I don't know, like a symphony right away. Sure. So so we teach the skill of non-judgmentalness and that is related to shame. Shame is often... Okay, some background on shame can be helpful to talk about here. Like shame as an emotion evolved as a way to stop us from doing things that would harm our community ahead of time. We're we're kind of like a tribal species, you know what I mean? We sort of rely on each other. And so, like, if I steal bread from you, DJ, right? That's gonna harm the community. So shame as an emotion evolved to stop us from doing that. Okay. Mm-hmm. The problem with shame is that it gets socialized really funky. Guilt does this too. And so people feel shame, especially if they grow up in really invalidating or critical families. Right. Um, and, and shame, just to define that for, for the audience, my understanding of shame is I did something uh, that, that I would rather have not done or I thought something I would have rather not thought therefore I am bad or I am less than there's something wrong with me is is that a fair definition of shame okay yeah that's how people often think about shame you know it's like you know what I did was bad and so there's that judgment right there you hear that right judge bad as a judge I shouldn't have done right and so boom shame evolutionarily speaking shame is an emotion that's justified when we will be factually rejected by another person or a group of people when our behavior is made known, right? And so there are instances where, you know, factually shame might be justified. And so that emotion makes sense. And so sometimes the healthy thing to do is to actually acknowledge that emotion and sort of do what it asks, you know? Like if I, okay, let's imagine I was at a political convention and my political belief is the polar opposite of the one that I'm at. Sure. And I want to stay at that convention 
I keep my mouth shut. I don't do it. I don't say anything. That's shame being functional, right? Right. There are lots of times where shame can be, where it can be really destructive. Right? And so that's kind of that like harsh self-criticism and judgmentalness and shame is almost a default emotion. Like I made a mistake. Oh, I'm bad. Intense. Shame. There's something wrong with me kind of idea. Exactly. Exactly. Most of the time, I mean, there probably maybe are some instances where this really would happen, but most of the time making, making a mistake is not going to result in getting rejected by someone, right? Forgetting someone's name is usually not going to result in rejection. Usually, maybe sometimes it will, I'll grant you, right? But like, I personally have felt really intense shame for making a small a small mistake. You know what yeah. I mean? And so- yeah, it- I, I was just going to pop in with you're, you're so right, because I think shame, the insidious nature of it uh-huh. is that it sneaks itself into really innocuous, unimportant um, sort of situations where I forget someone's name and I go, oh, what's wrong with me that I couldn't remember? I've met that person three times. What is wrong with me? Why can't I remember? And then you actually are beating yourself up for making, you know, a seemingly trivial mistake that it doesn't have probably dire consequences yeah a lot of the time shame is is a secondary emotion uh a a side effect so to speak of a primary emotion that's more vulnerable something like embarrassment the interesting thing embarrassment and shame are are they're the same core emotion embarrassment is like uh it's like what you feel when there's a little uh faux social faux pas like sure i'm at a nice dinner and i just belched out loud right you know, and the right. amazing, or it's like, oh my God, DJ, we've met like a dozen times and I keep forgetting your name. I'm so sorry. And the interesting thing is like when we express shame, we're actually experienced as more like, or not shame, excuse me, embarrassment. We're experienced as more likable by the other person. It's it's really this interesting outcome. Um, so my point going back to shame is that shame is often secondary plus a judgment to something like I'm feeling anxious or I yeah. feel disappointed or I feel guilty or I feel uh, embarrassment, you know? And the, the amazing thing is when we're working with primary emotions are the way that we cope is better and we're more likely to experience validation by the other person, you know? So in this, you know, you're talking about loneliness and when we express a primary emotion, like I feel really embarrassed or I feel really uh, disappointed in what I did right there, or I'm really nervous about that you're going to be mad at me, right? Like when we're in an environment that's supportive and validating, we're actually more likely to get a response from the other person of like, I see you and it builds connection. Again, it's that sort of like antidote to loneliness, if that makes some sense. It it does. And it seems that this self-criticism that results in shame um, also my inclin my understanding of, of shame is that the inclination is to go hide mm-hmm. and to because it's it's just easier to hide in that moment where and but is it is it you know necessarily better or healthier um and i guess uh that that can be the 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 challenge that that some men face i certainly have faced that where i feel shame and then i think well, if I don't go out and interact with people, um, I, th- there's less chance of me feeling more shame because I'm less likely to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, that, that could in theory that I guess that makes logical sense. Is it the life I want? 
And, and the answer is probably not, um, for, for me, it isn't. Um, and, and so I guess DBT seems to provide skills to get unstuck from things like that. Yeah, it really, I, I think it does. You know, if I'm feeling shame and then I don't go out, right. Well, that, that, what can make more sense than that? Like, of course, of course, like that's, that's actually a really logical thing to do. And at the exact same time, one of the things I'm doing, if I'm hiding is I am teaching myself that I, there really is something for me to feel shame about. Now, if I go out and interact with people like DBT, there's a skill called opposite action in DBT that we teach that is fundamentally about observe the emotion. And then if it's effective in this moment, you may want to go opposite to it. You know, sometimes my, uh, I talk about it as like act in a different emotion and then the emotion follow, follows suit, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that you learn at an experiential level in your guts, as opposed to intellectual, like sometimes it might happen where like, I might intellectually know that, but I feel something very different. What you end up doing by going opposite to sort of shame, for instance, is like, okay, maybe not everyone is going to love you. I'll grant you that. And at the exact same time, you might learn that, you know, the likelihood that you're going to get rejected by other people is really, really low. And shame changes on its own, sort of like a miracle, right? And if we, you know, how you do that and the steps to do that, you know, that's, I think, really where the, the elegance of DBT is, is that it tells you how to do it rather than, rather than just sort of saying like, well, just go out. Okay. Right. How, you know, like. It, it reminds me of something my my father said uh, to me years ago, which uh, this is not in any way a criticism towards my father. He just had this particular skill, probably doesn't know how or why he has it, but I w- it's a skill I don't have, where he would say, you're so hard on yourself. You just need to stop being hard on yourself. And I was like, I am right with you, dad. There is nobody that agrees with that more than me. However... I am not totally clear on how to do that. Like I would love to not be as hard on myself. And, and, um, and, and then that's where his ability to help would sort of stop because he would go, well, you just don't, you don't be hard on yourself. And, and, um, you know, and, and I would say, gosh, I wish it were that simple for me. And it it just wasn't. And, uh, you know, um, now I, I think, you know, looking into DBT skills, this looks like uh, sort of a way out of that. Yeah. It is kind of interesting, like the how, like everyone can wiggle their fingers and everyone can sort of like blow, but like, that doesn't mean that you can play the flute. You know what I mean? It's kind of the same idea, you know, like, don't be hard on yourself. Cool. How exactly? And, and what, in what, like, how do I do that? And what might be keeping the behavior going or the emotional response going, even if I don't want it to be good, like, even if I don't want it to happen. So I, I think this has been incredibly uh, useful and helpful to uh, a large group of of our audience who has been just unfamiliar with DBT um, and this idea that really anyone can pick up uh, some or all of these skills in in a in, in a structured way, um, learning how to just better regulate and 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 getting. It seems like DBT seems to be a lot about getting out of your own way, whether it's because you're, you're doing behaviors that, that you prefer you would rather not do, or you just feel that you are unable to make a different decision. It seems mm-hmm. like DBT might be uh, a, a bit of hope for people that feel stuck. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with all that. 
And for anyone out there who's interested in, in learning DBT, again, to be clear, you do not have to have had some of these, these more extreme, um, you know, conditions like bipolar disorder, sorry, a borderline personality disorder and, and, you know, other uh, substance abuse. And it, it can be helpful for people who aren't uh, suffering in that particular way. Mm-hmm. Um, so for somebody who obviously, if, if, you know, somebody has their own uh, therapist, they can certainly talk about this with them. But for for people who who are, would like to learn more and really get better versed on whether it would make sense for them, um, mm-hmm. what do you what do you find is like a, a good first step? So there are a couple of good websites to learn sort of the the basic facts about DBT and what it is. So like one of the big pushes in the community over the last decade or so has been to um, have a a form of certification so that if someone says they actually do DBT, they like really do it in the way that it was designed and the way it was researched. So so a couple of good resources, the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, uh, abct.org, is a wonderful, wonderful resource for learning about therapies like DBT. You can also learn about like radically open DBT, which is is a whole other related, but whole other thing. Um, We could do an entirely separate podcast on that or like ACT or, or, you know, um, just standard cognitive behavioral therapy. So abct.org is wonderful. Um, Behavioral tech uh, is another wonderful resource. and the Linehan Board of Certification is another wonderful resource. And if you Google any of those, um, you and and I can probably and I can send you the links to those if you want, uh, DJ. And you can maybe put them in the show notes for your listener. Um, those are wonderful resources to learn about, like the history of DBT and what it is and how you can uh, pursue that therapy. If it's something that that you know you kind of have a feeling, oh, this could be helpful. There are also, there's also search engines to help you find a therapist who practices DBT in, you know, your area. So, um, and that, and, oh, and one question too, about somebody really wanting to, you know, go into a full DBT mm-hmm. sort of program, this could be in complement to existing CB, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or, or really any type of, of therapy. Um, mm-hmm. it, does it run in contradiction to any other types of therapies that, you know, should, we should mention? Um, that's, that's a complicated question. So I'll give you sort of, I'll do my best to answer it in a way that, uh, is straightforward and, um, useful. So it, it, it is a fellow traveler with many cognitive behavioral therapies. Um, there's to just to sort of say this for the listener, full DBT is comprised of, at least from the, the if, if, if I'm a client in DBT, the part that I'm experiencing is once a week individual therapy, right? Um, there is a weekly skills group where the skills are taught. And I think, you know, if someone was doing um, to step away from this for a second, if someone was already involved in therapy and wanted to learn the skills, getting connected with the skills group is, is going to um, be the, the most efficient way to do that. Um, moving back to what full DBT is, there's also in-between session phone coaching where uh, a client in DBT is able to contact their therapist in between sessions for short 
help using skills in the moments where it's needed. It's not therapy over the phone. Like when my clients call for phone coaching, they will give me a brief summary of the situation that they're in, what they've tried to use, and I will help them use skills on the phone. And then, you know, we follow up in our individual therapy session. So that's the full package. When someone begins DBT, the first like four sessions or, or so are just about the conversation of, does it make sense for us to work together and for you to be in DBT? So if, and if the client and the therapist agree together, ah, this, 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 this fits, this, this makes sense. You know, the, the standard adherent way of doing it is for the, the, the individual to transition from their current therapist to working with a, a DBT therapist. That's the primary therapist. Okay. Um, for those of listeners who are just interested in learning about the skills, someone can be in a skills training group and be in an individual and, and be in their own individual therapy. So I, the reason why I'm highlighting this DJ is I want to make it very clear to the listeners that there is a distinction between full protocol adherent DBT and participating in a skills group. There's lots of research out there that people can get the benefits of DBT in a skills only sort of context. Right. Got it. And so that is available. Like we offer that at the family Institute. Um, I have several, I work with, uh, in the skills group that I, that I run, I work with clients or skills group members who aren't seeing an individual DBT therapist, but still want to get the benefit of the skill. So that does happen. Got it. Got it. And I, I'm just curious since these skills have been so, uh, empirically sort of proven to, to be effective, um, do you see it in the future? Do you see, I, you know, I, I think it would be easiest to, to sort of, if I'm thinking like, how do you get some of these skills out to people who need them the, mm-hmm. the most seems like children would be, you know, in school, uh, this could be a particularly helpful thing for children to learn, um, in, in, in school. Have you, has there been any sort of movement of trying to teach skills like this to children? Um, in, in a more traditional school setting. Um, I, I just could see that as being incredibly effective. There is, there's, there's, um, I'm trying to think, uh, probably, oh, how long ago was this book published? I don't remember when it was in the last 10 years for the treatment protocol for DBT in schools that was published within the last decade. And so there is, there are some preliminary trials of, 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 using dbt in schools as part of like a curriculum it's very interesting i'll be very curious to see how that progresses and how it can be adapted to help children who you know likely their parents don't have some some of these their parents or some of the parents of of children just don't have skills like this and this Mm -hmm. could be i think an alternate way of, of introducing the 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 children to to helpful you know sort of evidence based skills for uh, better regulation, just better. Uh, yeah. Um, so that, that's very interesting. So we'll, we'll, and, and it seems that adults are, are, are getting more familiar as well with, with what DBT is. And so really grateful to have had you on the show to, to talk to our audience about what DBT is, how it can be helpful and, and maybe who should consider it as, as a next step. Um, if anyone out there is interested in learning about DBT or any of the other types of services that the Family Institute at Northwestern offers, uh, please visit their website, family-institute.org. Link for that will be in the show notes, along with 
the links that Mark had suggested to learn more specifically on your own about, you know, is DBT, what is it? And, and it, could it possibly be helpful to me? So those links will all be in the show notes. Uh, Mark, thank you for your time. We, uh, this was a really fun conversation and really grateful that you were able to take time out, by the way, just to pull back the curtain, this is a Sunday morning and <laughs> I'm assuming a, a, a day where you are probably not working. So really appreciate, uh, you, you jumping on, on this, um, this episode and really appreciate your time. So thank you, Mark, and we will see everybody on the next episode. Thanks a lot.